Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten, the only podcast that you are currently listening to that reviews horror films with five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. So, like, I, our, our niche is already pretty small, and I thought I would just refine it a little further with the concept that you're listening to it currently now. Uh, I am Matt Monagle. I am one half of your Matt hosts, and I am joined by my partner in crime, um, the guy who makes watching bad movies look easy, Matt Donato. How are you doing, friend? Doing good. Would it be weird if I said I'm a quarter of the other half of, of the hosts and we did, there was just a quarter host somewhere that we didn't know about? That would be, I, well, it would be another Matt, so I suppose that's probably a little stranger. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're doing there. I don't like it, and I'm not going to acknowledge it, but I see it. That's pretty much our relationship, so that's fine. Yeah, we're, we're, we're in great shape. We're in mid-episode shape already. Ah, so you're listening to Certified Forgotten. Every week we have an awesome guest. You've seen the guest in the podcast title, so I'm not really spoiling anything here. But I want to I want to note I want to note before Matt does the introduction that this person is the person who is responsible for getting me into horror journal- journalism. This is the first editor I ever had, the best editor I ever had, the person who plucked me out of obscurity off of a Craigslist post and launched what has been. At least for me, a pretty successful writing career. Um, those are some high stakes. That's a personal attachment that I have to the narrative that uh, Matt's about to share. But Matt, please do the, please do the more traditional introduction for our guest today. Sure, allow me to do the more generic template. Uh, you know this person as the editor of Certified Forgotten, one one of the family, we'll, we'll say, and also recently published in Grimm Magazine. To everything else Monagle said, this is Christine Makepeace. Hello. I don't know how to really follow that intro, but uh, thank you. Um, all of the things that were just said, they're flattering and, I guess, truthful. So happy to be they here. Are, they're entirely truthful. They're 100% truthful, I'm afraid. Well, yes. um, the, best, the best and easiest praise is when it's true and accurate. And I know it's uncomfortable for you to take praise, but you're going to get more of it later on. So I'm sorry. Thank you. It is uncomfortable. And you know, that's one of the reasons why I really, truly appreciate our relationship. You you really do understand what I have trouble with. And you really just come up to meet I me did. halfway. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I like I, I try and take the edge off my compliments, which is which is an interesting an interesting statement. But that's, you know, I don't want to leave you hanging too much. Well, okay, Christine. So uh, we've we've known each other. We've known each other for a minute, um, but you know, and we've probably over the years have talked about some of this stuff. But for a lot of our for a lot of our listeners that that may be familiar with your work because they're used to kind of the insights that you bring, kind of behind the scenes, the hidden stuff, right? Like they've seen the polish that you put on some of these pieces, but they may not know your history as as a horror writer yourself. They may not know your history as an editor in chief and a publisher yourself. So. I'm really excited for today's conversation, and I want to start off by going all the way back to the beginning and having you talk about your early days with the horror genre. Like we do with all of our guests, we want to know like what were the films, what were those early childhood moments that sort of set the hook. So what was that like for you? Like, What was your relationship to horror as a kid? Um, yeah, so I always really uh, was drawn to genre stuff, whether it be books, TV. I liked things with a horror or a sci-fi element um i think a lot of that has to do with my mom she definitely skewed that way and what she showed me even if it was just something like labyrinth which is um, heavily fantastical she would show me that over i guess other more standard things that people in the 80s watched um so i had a good base pretty young i watched poltergeist way too young i watched nightmare on elm street way too young and that stuff all just kind of stuck 
Um, and then, uh, I don't know, I, I kind of didn't care about movies for a long time. I went through a weird adolescent phase and then all of a sudden in my very early 20s, I went, oh my God, I love horror movies and this full tilt ever since. So if, if you weren't caring about movies, let me ask, what was the, what was the thing that got you excited as a teenager? Music, probably. I, I, I was mm. very into music. I would follow bands around in my late teens, very early 20s. Uh, and that was kind of it. And I didn't really, I guess I didn't have room for movies, which is a strange thing. I also had an awful boyfriend at the time. And, the, and this is not a judgment on this genre at all. For like five years, the only movies I saw in the theater were like Halloween movies, like Michael Myers movies, which is fine. But that's a steady diet. It does not make a healthy person. So sometimes you need to diversify. Yeah. It's really, it's really hard to kind of like overcome those, especially with art, the art that we connect to people and the styles of art that we connect to people. It can be, it can be super shitty trying to unpack how you feel about something and reclaim that from somebody you've been with that you had bad experiences with. Lord knows I've had plenty of people in my life who have showed me really good movies that I was like, Oh, I hate you, but I like this. What do I do? And also the uh, the opposite effect at times can be when you show someone a movie like when I showed an ex-girlfriend Gremlins for the first time and she fell asleep in 15 minutes. And I was like, oh, this is never going to work. This is great. This is my barometer. This is this is the end. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, I've I have a very complicated uh, relationship with slasher films, if you ever want to get into that. So I feel like that might be a different show. It's a whole not different our show. Thing. We don't go that deep. <laughs> Well, talk about talk about getting back into the genre. Then you know you you said you were in your twenties. You were like, "Holy shit! I like horror. Horror is mine again. I've reclaimed it from this terrible ex." You know how did you how did you start to manifest that in your life? Like, what were what were the things that you were doing that were allowing you to connect with the genre and the community that you would eventually become part of? Um, I had a lot of suddenly had a lot of free time, and this is back when we still rented movies from places i'm very old woman now um so i just started randomly renting movies like i went i missed donnie darko like i didn't wasn't a part of when that came out there was just weird like cult film touchstones that i was around for but didn't experience so i had this like wild back catalog of things to kind of go through um, and I did, and that helped me kind of define what I actually liked. And it did start my strange relationship with popular opinion versus what I actually thought was good, because I was being told, these are the movies you should watch. This is what you should catch up on. And then I would watch some of them and be like, oh, I don't like this. This is good. You think this is good? So I think that started me down my very opinionated road. Um, and I uh, then met a person uh, very dear to my heart uh, who I liked films as well and we decided to start a print magazine in 2007 together for some reason which was probably a bad idea um but i didn't know any better so i did it anyways so this magazine would this happen to be <laughs> paris cinema by any chance yeah but it, a little a little magazine by the name of paris cinema um i I had worked on a magazine that no longer exists um, that was very horror centric. It was very, um, you know, black and red blood spatter, like extreme kind, which is there's obviously places for that. But I didn't feel I didn't feel like that was the only way to approach 
horror films and genre cinema in general and I didn't understand why there was such a need to like delineate horror from like other genres so so we we decided to make paracinema kind of like a catch-all like anything weird gross obscure like that let's put it here um because I wanted to produce something with content that I wanted to read and I couldn't really find it and this was still I mean we were in the blogger days back then so you could you could find it but I thought like how cool would it be to kind of get it all together and like find all these different voices and and put them together and create this thing and I mean I didn't know that it was going to be this huge formative experience but it is pretty much everybody I know and all, all the contacts I have now are because of that still, um, which is amazing, I think. And I mean, like print itself is just it's a medium that, yes, it is dying. Yes, it's almost dead at this point. It's something that is becoming very bygone because we have the Internet. But the Internet is so impersonal in ways that I think print it, it just you can hold something it's tangible it's a physical copy and it's so much more to me when i read my let's for example like if i have a byline in a fangoria magazine which happens like once a year but still that once a year byline means so much more than the churn and burn of online stuff that could like vanish in a second or like someone could just delete and that article's gone but I, there's just something about being in print and like i i 100 it's like it, it's an endeavor that is well who would do that that's crazy <laughs> to have a magazine to hold it is just so much better. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I enjoy it. I'm, I'm curious a little bit too, when um, you're talking about kind of creating a magazine in 2007 and there are, there are horror magazines, of course, that have never stopped running stuff like Fang mm -hmm. Fangoria that has died and been reborn and came back again. There's stuff that has, have been around for a bit now. And I think are, are sort of in that, survival state of like rumored magazine, which we kind of expect to survive. And there's other stuff that's kind of popped up and come down, but I'm curious, like in 2007, when, you know, really before what we think of as the standard set of social media channels and the way that we use them, you know, how are you identifying writers? How are you pulling people into this community? How are you giving a platform to folks? Cause you couldn't just pop on Twitter and be like, let me search for a movie that I want somebody to write about. Holy shit. Somebody like, Mary Beth McAndrews wrote a really killer piece about this. I bet she has something to say about this. Let me DM her, blah, blah, blah. Like, how, do you, how did you do that in the quote unquote old days? Um, I, I feel like we were really lucky. Um, and I don't have a great answer for this because a lot of it was, I'm undercutting myself a little bit. A lot of it was luck, but a lot of it was just weird hustle. Like um, we did Craigslist ads and that is how uh, we found you, Matthew. Um, we found a lot of people through through Craigslist, uh, which I guess at the time was an imperfect, but like viable way to get gig work still. I mean, it's definitely not now, obviously, but back in the old days, it was a thing. And we had a decent MySpace presence, but MySpace didn't really have the tools especially for like a print movie magazine to really get your name out there but i mean we put we tried we used it as best we could and and i think that got us some traction as well um and then i think after a while there was a lot of word of mouth we got we became friends with a a, a couple podcasts some of which are still running remarkably um but we got in with them and and that generated interest and there was kind of a groundswell a little one but I mean, it still was the ground swelling. So um, it, it, it kind of was organic. And I think 
most good things are organic. You kind of can't force things to happen if they're not gonna sometimes. And I really truly feel like, again, if I had known what I knew about print and where it was headed and what, what a silly endeavor that it could potentially be, I probably wouldn't have done it. But that being said, it, it all worked out for about a decade. I, I couldn't, couldn't have asked for more. Well, I want to ask about kind of the aftermath of that too, because I know, I know, un- unfortunately, RIP Fangoria died um, before its time, and then I wanted it to live forever. But you know, for all the reasons we've sort of hinted at here, it's tough out there to be a print publication. You know, how did you, how did you take, how, how, did, how did you react or evolve from that point where you had something that was had had its own sub community, right? Like so much of horror is about us attaching ourselves to other communities that already exist. How did you kind of come down from the aftermath of having created a community that had attachments and sort of say, how am I going to integrate and navigate with these folks going forward? And also by Fangoria, you mean Paracinema, correct? Did I say Matt? Fangoria? Okay, you I did. meant Paracinema. Uh, I'll say Room Org <laughs> in here too, to just kind of mix all the ones. I'll say Scream <laughs> Magazine, just to like make sure that everybody's getting an equal amount of airtime in my you know Tuesday night crazy brain. So Christine, that question, but but to note, Fangoria is still very alive. (laughs) Paracinema, unfortunately, is is dead, and that's the one we're talking Um, about. Well, it was a choice. Um, Talking about organic things, it wasn't really an organic choice. It it was put to bed way before I think it was uh, done. Uh, I I was in a relationship with the person I was working on it with, and that relationship ended, and, and thus the magazine ended. Uh, there was a there was really no interest in doing it separately, and I get that, um, and I think that's probably for the best. I definitely think that it could have gone a lot further. Uh, it pushed me out of my comfort zones in a lot of ways that I think were good, but also I don't think anybody should have to wear that many hats, especially if it makes them uncomfortable, if it's something that they're truly not good at. And there were aspects of it um, that I I'm, was not good at. Um, but I, thankfully everyone that I had made friends with and become close with, like become a family with people weren't just tossing me out because it was done. Like uh, people were really, and of course I, some people were, were shed because you were no longer an entity. You were just a person with nothing to really offer them. But I, I would, I think the people mm-hmm. that I cared about were s- still there and are still there again, shockingly. It, it's, it's it's a real testament to the relationships that were built and uh and it was a, an amazing time uh and some magazines look like that design now so i mean i'm not saying anybody stole anything but also pretty influential that's all i think it's awesome that that's how we met and technically that's how i met donato as well kind of in a roundabout way so i was gonna say we actually met beforehand at fantastic fest i was drunk in karaoke and you were there it was like mccarg michael hafner and i remember you were there so we actually met like i think my first year at fantastic fest and that's how we started to uh just like talk and follow each other online which was that funny thing when monogle was like oh yeah like why don't we bring in christine i'm like oh like i know christine is like wait why do you know christine like i know christine you can't know christine and i'm like listen man (laughs) yeah i i no no Look, there's enough of me to go around. I snuck in, not snuck into Fantastic Fest. To say you sneak into Fantastic Fest, I didn't. I I lived in Austin and I didn't get press 
ever. I never, ever got approved for press for uh, Fantastic Fest. Um, so I just would go and see people. And Michael Hafner was my my friend. And he was like, come hang out. And I was like, I don't know any of these people. And he's like, they're really nice. And you know what? They were really nice. And you know, Donato, I, I would never begrudge you the ability to be the little social butterfly that you are. You're like, you're like that guy in high school that wasn't like belonged to no social circle. And then because of that accidentally blocked to all social circles, you're like that for the film community. So of course, of course, you know, of course I expect you to know folks because you weren't a jock, but you knew the jocks, you know, you weren't a theater kid, but you knew the theater kids. That's where I position you socially. Yeah. But the difference is all those people suck. And the people I met now are cool. So it's nice. I actually have good friends this time and I get to shed all the shitty ones from my wow, hometown. Suck at New Jersey high school system. Jeez. Going to let that note linger a little bit. If, if you're a, <laughs> yeah, just going to leave you, that there. If you're suck a hometown it. friend of Matt Donato and you're listening to the show, it's time for him to tell you what he really thinks about you. No, no, no. They, they knew who they know okay. who they are. <laughs> It is not every one of them. I still have plenty if, of great If you're somebody that didn't is, but, like Mathenado growing up and you're listening to the show, can I ask why? Will you write us at certifiedforgotten at gmail.com and explain why you're listening to the show right now? Because I'd love to know. That's a strange choice. Yeah, actually, I would too. And also, I will respond I'll respond with a gift too. And it'll be great. All right. Anyways, enough about your high school. We've got more questions for Christine. Um, so my question, Christine, my, I think my last question that I want to ask you is kind of talking about talking about your relationship to the horror community now. I mean, there was a period there when we were talking, you you didn't write uh, a lot of film criticism anymore. You know, you kind of that was some uh, something that you had sort of stopped doing and you were gracious enough to accept our offer to come back and work with some of our writers on a regular basis at Certified Forgotten. Like Donato said in his intro, you are now published in Grimm Magazine you continue to write fiction on your own side, but it sort of it sort of feels like you're you're I don't want to say stepping back into, but you know, you're dabbling a little bit with some of these things you hadn't done in a minute. You know, where do you where do you feel you are in relationship and connected to the horror community these days? Um, I I like to be a, a calm, supporting presence. I I did the the grind, as they say, for for about a decade. Um, where all I did was write and edit and watch movies, and it burnt me out in a really profound way. Um, and it, it was hard emotionally, too, because, I mean, this is I, not that anything's changed, but really, truly, the amount of times that I have been told awful, awful things just because someone didn't like my opinion made it hard for me to say my opinion on the internet. Um, so, I think I like to write. I prefer to write fiction. I, I like to squawk my movie opinions loudly and sometimes write them down. But um, I, I really do like editing and I really like helping people uh, clarify and uh, uh, hone their ideas and their thoughts. I think that that's probably what I'm better suited for. Um, if anything, the magazine taught me that I should maybe seek out the things that I like to do instead of just forcing myself to do everything, even if I don't like it. And sometimes I don't like writing on the internet. So I'll, I would rather read and retweet and tell somebody how great I think their writing is and buy their books or something that, that feels better to me. And I feel like I'm still engaged to a certain degree. Because I would love it if people read my stuff and told me how good they thought it was. So I'm just trying to like pay that forward. Hey, your writing's great. Thanks. Kind of thing. I like that. I like I like that that's I like that that's where you were because I that was 
that really defines kind of the relationship that I think I had with you from the beginning was, you know, you were an excellent editor, but you were also somebody that like, liked my writing at a time where nobody else, you know, nobody else even knew who I was. And so your, your attitude was always like, Hey, this is good. You should do more of this. And it was just a very, at my best, I felt very supported and I felt like I had a really good home with you as my editor. So the fact that, that I get, I have an opportunity now um, with my good buddy, Matt Donato to kind of replicate that experience for some other writers that are coming up through the ranks at Certified Forgotten, that to me is like, that's real fucking cool. Like that's a really, that's a good point of pride um, that I can take the experience that you gave me and have, you know, give you an opportunity to give those to other writers too. No, it means a lot to me too, because I want to do that. And that's what I like to do. And I, I really, truly appreciate that you identified that and wanted to include me. Um, <laughs> sometimes it feels like uh, if you don't have anything uh, truly tangible to offer, uh, people don't want you at the table. So I appreciate you offering me a place at the table. Yeah, and I'm glad that you like editing because that's a good thing because we hired you yeah. to do that. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're very, very encouraging and very happy about editing. So that, not that our d- decision was hard, but this definitely makes it yeah. a lot easier. I mean, pretty, we're okay. I think we're okay at editing, but we, but we, there's a lot of stuff that we just, you know, we could, we could use the help. I think, I think a lot, I think Donato and I have been spent, you, you kind of, I mean, you kind of inferred this, right? When you were talking earlier, I think we spent so much time working for publications that don't really have an editorial process that we're just sort of used to like releasing writing, having it all changed to meet whatever SEO or whatever needs that are required. And then, you know, just move on to the next project. And when you do editing well, you give, you know, in an ideal world, you give writers an opportunity to actually, you know, look at feedback, respond to feedback, make adjustments based on feedback. And it's not just this pipeline where you're basically like, okay, you gave me the piece. I make the changes that need to be made. I publish it. You never see that interim process. It's that it's that interim process where people get better. And so that's that's the thing that I think that that you're so excellent at. That Donato and I are still improving our skill set at and makes hopefully for our writers, uh, you know, a, an interesting experience. Yeah, here's hoping. I once wrote an article about The Sentinel, that fantastic movie um, about the gates of hell and uh, the the building in Brooklyn. I uh, wrote a beautiful article that I was extremely happy with and then sent it off. And uh, when I uh, read it online, it was uh, completely rewritten to the point where I don't even know why I bothered to do it. And I never got any explanation as to why. So uh, I don't ever want to do that to anybody. Yeah, that's, I mean, just as Matt said, we kind of do live in a time where the editorial process has uh, shifted, we'll say. And by shifted, I mean, it doesn't exist in a lot of places. And that's not us tooting our horn by any means. But again, it is what Monica said, where we we just want to offer something where, especially if we're going to try to work with up and coming writers, we want to give you feedback and we want to help you, you know, see the piece that we know you can write and we want to get that out of you. And that's not a bad thing. It's not that you are a quote unquote bad writer. It's that. No, we, we want to see like the, we want to push you and see what you can do next. It's like here, that's a great first draft. Let's see what you can do with it to a different level where other sites. And I can tell you uh, without naming names, a few people have written to us or written for us. And they are names that you have read many other places. And when they say, yeah, you were the first time I got notes. It's like interesting. Yeah. And it's just a byproduct of the system. Listen, I, I know that I, I know the sites that do and don't. And I know why they do and don't. It's it's just a churn thing at sometimes. And. There's a reason they're on top and there's a reason others aren't. So we know we'll never be on the top. So at least we can do something editorial. Yeah, that's our, our tagline is, is a, a publication certified forgotten. will never be first. 
Look, you know, know yourselves. There's a reason Forgotten's in the title. <laughs> it's good. It's good to know. You know, like, but but it is. It's nice to never have to worry about. Like, we have to get this up by the end of the day because this movie's premiering. Nope, we'll never run new releases. Huzzah for us. Oh, speaking of not new releases, actually, this is a perfect segue into today's film. So we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, we're gonna dig. Dude, we're gonna we're gonna go so explore some uh, some direct to video love from uh, from you know not that long ago. We'll be right back. <laughs> Hey, we're going to take a break from this episode to tell you a few things. First and foremost, we're going to tell you that we could not, would not, should not do the show without your support. So thank you to all of our patrons and the people that support us with a click, with a share, with a like. All of that goes a long way. Being part of one of our patrons, you know, you actually get to put words in Matt Donato's mouth. That's like the whole thing. That's the fun part about participating in these bumpers and getting Matt to be your little ventriloquist doll. You you move your hands and he says whatever you're thinking. So Donato, what have you lined up for this this week? I might need to rethink this tier after you've just described it like that. <laughs> but in any case, while we uh, still have me acting like your puppet, apparently. First up, we have Mr. Ian, and he's going to ask me to read some lyrics. I won't be afraid of you. I won't lie and beg for today. Right away. No fun and games for you. I don't need to sacrifice my day. Not this way. That is Serge Tankian from System of Down, and that is Ian's wish. Uh hoping for more System of Down music one day. But we have had recent System of Down music, so let's hope for even more of that. Yeah, Ian, you've had two songs in 15 years. Like, you want more? Come on, Matt, chill. Like, that's that's a lot. I miss, um, I miss my system so bad. And you, as we've been talking before, you reviewed the uh, documentary that just came out, and you have some thoughts on that really quickly. Yeah, it's good. It's, it's political, but it's good. But if you like System of Down, then you already know that they're political, but they're also good, so that should come as no surprise. Should we go to our second one? Lay it on me. All right, this one is coming from Mr. Corey, and Mr. Corey likes to ask us questions, and this is no different. So, first off, oh, well, god damn it. All right, first off, I, Matt Donato, do solemnly swear, swear that breakfast food is amazing to have any time of day, but especially at dinner. End quote. I was forced to read that by Corey. And now the question. Mm. So speaking of things that make you sick, what really gets you in horror movies? Is there anything that will make you hide your eyes a little bit, gag a little bit, eat, uh, et cetera, et cetera? So, Monagle? I love this question because it, I, sometimes I'm accidentally reminded that we run a horror film podcast. Um, I Donato knows this about me. I do not do well with, with torture. There's a laundry list of French extremity films that I have not watched and I'm struggling to ever make the time to watch because I know how violent so basically, any any prolonged sequences of abuse, of torture, make my skin crawl. And it doesn't mean that those aren't great movies and that I don't like it. It's just like my stomach drops. I mean, you, you guys have probably listened to the, uh, the um, Poughkeepsie Tapes episode. Like, had a really, really hard time with that. And that wasn't even anything. That was fucking nothing. So that's what gets me. Uh, Donato, how about you, man? I mean, like, I'm very specific. It is torture for me, but it's two very specific actions, I guess I would say. And I mean, I've eaten dinner during the worst horror movies. I think as a horror movie critic, you just kind of, you become immune to the fact that you're gonna try to squeeze dinner time in during a screener. And that screener is probably gonna be horrific and grotesque and gory in some ways. So like I've eaten dinner to most of the Saw movies and anything on that level, but two things continually get me. The first one is fingernails. Once like a fingernail mm. is starting to get pulled off and 
they do that elongated cut right on the fingernail and you watch it get torn off I, that gives me the heebie-jeebies and it makes me like literally crawl into my own skin uh number two is just straight up vomiting and i know that's probably a universal thing but I just don't like seeing people vomit. So when that happens on screen and watching the uh, Haunters dock where they take you in McCamey Manor and this lunatic running this quote unquote haunted attraction who was making like force feeding people these disgusting things, they would throw up and then he would force feed that stuff back to them. That was probably the most grossed out I've ever been watching something and like the closest I've ever come to actually replicating that myself. Yeah, if you have to sign a waiver to to be in a haunted house, I mean, like, just no, pass, hard pass. No. And that, I don't even want to watch the movie about it. And that well, the movie is very good about it because it draws a line between people like the ones who run McCamey Manor and why they are kind of not not liked in the community and the versus effect. You know, what is a good haunt? What is a bad haunt? So I, I do suggest Haunters: The Art of the Scare as a documentary, but. Be warned, you will see some things that will shake you to your core because it's all fucking real. Well, on that note, uh, Donato, I believe you have a Chipotle burrito to go eat. So have fun with that, friend. We both have South by movies to uh, unbury ourselves from, I guess I would say. Yeah, that's very, very true. All right. Well, back to the episode. Thank you all. Hey, welcome back. So, uh, today's film, again, you saw it in the episode title, no surprises here, is Population 436. It is a 2006 release from director Michelle McLaurin, who you know from basically any television show that was any good from the last 10 years. It stars Jeremy Sisto, and we're going to talk about Jeremy Sisto. It also stars Fred Durst, which I did not realize until the closing credits, because that's the kind of Limp Biscuit fan I'm not. And it is a film about a census taker who travels to a very small town, the, uh, the almost too perfect town of Rockwell Falls in North Dakota, to try and kind of figure out why there's a bit of a discrepancy in the town census records. It seems that every single decade, every single time they're in the census, the population is exactly 436. So as Jeremy Sisto's character gets to know the town's folks, um, a little bit of Shirley Jackson shit starts to happen. I'll just put it that way. And it builds to the kind of ending you could really only have in a DVD, you know, in the like early 2000, like mid to early 2000 to 2010 era. You know, the kind of like nobody's watching, so we'll do what we want kind of ending. And we're going to talk about that, too. Um, there's probably a lot more we can say about the film by way of introduction. I'm not going to, I want to get right into the conversation because I remember this movie. I <gasps> rented this movie no. and I'm really excited to talk about it with Christine. So Christine, first question, we gave you your pick of anything that you could think of that was five or fewer reviews. <laughs> you picked this, you picked this one and I, I fucking love that choice, but tell me why this is the movie that came to mind for you. Well, I'm going to tell you that it's a lot harder to find a movie uh, with that criteria than you might think. I had a really hard time with it, and I kept coming back to this for some reason. I have I saw Population 436, I don't know, in like 2010 or something. I don't know why I saw it. I don't know where I saw it, but I'm pretty sure I watched it because Fred Durst was in it. And it just never left my brain, and I think you really hit it when you said it's got Shirley Jackson energy, because have you ever, have either of you ever seen the, the made for TV lottery with Dan Cortez in it? Mm -hmm. you, sh you 
You should, know, if I you know. haven't. It's got, it's very that. It's very uh, Dan Cortez, maybe Carrie Russell. Maybe I just made that up. But like a made for TV on the cheap version of the lottery, but like with the census. And, and, and there's like little bits of folk horror in it, I guess. Like maybe a little bit, maybe I'm reaching, but it felt like that. And there's, there's like, it's like a great episode of the Twilight Zone. Like, oh, you know that great episode where the census taker? Yeah. But I mean, it's not a perfect film by any means, but it ticks a lot of boxes for me. Also, I would not short sell the full car because the first thing that I put it towards is basically like to me, it felt like the Wicker Man meets the lottery. Like that was everything in my head that I came up with because so much of the beginning is Sisto's character. You know, he's the Chicagoan who's mm-hmm, there mm-hmm. to figure out the census, blah, 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 crack, the, crack the case. But all the stuff he's going around this town, it it really feels Wicker Man-esque in the sense that the townsfolk are so accommodating and open. And you have the coy lines about like, oh, you're never leaving from like the nice old lady. And like, sister's like, wait, what? And like, he just keeps moving forward because it doesn't, it doesn't click until about half the movie. So I, again, I wouldn't short sell that. I, I think there's definitely some like Wicker Man full car vibes going on here. Yeah. I kind of feel like there's, there's almost like a, um, it, it it it's a good example of how you do that kind of thing right right because like a lot of movies try and do the it's too perfect to be true kind of thing and they can't quite calibrate how much to make right like the characters are a little too creepy like too overtly creepy and the audience doesn't work or you know they're like it's too low-key and so you kind of something like almost the village where when the reveal does happen it felt at the time, and I, I know we're in the process of kind of rediscovering and reclaiming that one, but it felt at the time like I was a bit out of left field. So you have to sort of walk a little bit of a fine line where you're like, when reveals happen, you're like, oh, I saw this coming, but also, okay, I, like that worked for me. And I think that's one thing the population 436 does really well is from the get-go, you know, it is, you know what kind of a movie this is because it has like giant bloody letters on the cover. Like this is 2006, you know, VHS DVD market. Like you're not going to, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna get away from being what this movie is. You're hoping to hook people on the video shelf, but at the same time, like it's 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 able to walk that line. It wants to be funny and coy and a little creepy, but not too creepy, and it does that with a much steadier hand than I think any DW video has any right to expect. It's also a lot more subdued than things coming out at that time, especially things that did hit uh, video, and that was still relatively new like i mean obviously things have always gone direct to video but we weren't it wasn't viable product wasn't always going direct to video people weren't like oh Mm. this thing i've never heard of i'll check out and give it a chance and so you got a lot of like you know the hyper violent and the really the 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 nasty stuff kind of got released that way so it was cool to see something that was like a little bit more thoughtful um and uh, and subdued and just a story uh i personally wish it had been weirder i think it could have gone weirder with it but I, if 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 that was the line they needed to walk and they kept the weirdness pulled back then that's fine i think what we ended up with worked and yeah if we're talking about 2006 the the dt d2 dvd or i don't know how do you say that d to d d to tv d d d d d to dvd d to dvd yeah whatever dvd the video i'm gonna you're gonna break my brain anyway the video market. I mean, if we're talking about 2006, that's when I maybe was streaming even happening at that point in the sense of just video on demand. 
uh, rentals? Like, is, is that too early? It for feels that? a smidge too early. Yeah, it feels like streaming was a few years after that, I think. Though I, I probably yeah. should have prepared for that beforehand. So let's say that I'm right because I'm an authority figure and it was a few years. Afterwards. No, that, that sounds about right. Because when we think of things that go direct to video, when we think of things that go video on demand, it's gotten better over time, but it still has a stigma because when that first started, it was very bottom of the barrel. The things that were coming straight to video were the things that belonged straight to video. And there are reasons that they came there. And I 100% believe that like I knew nothing about this movie coming into today's viewing because at that early time, I wasn't as big a cinephile, whatever you want to call what we are. Uh, and those kind of movies I did steer clear of. It's like, all right, it was going straight to video. There's a reason it is. I'm not going to really gamble on it. And I have since corrected my ways and probably overcorrected in many ways. But yes, I can. I can 100 percent see population four through six. You know, I can see this coming out and. It's that DT uh, direct video instance where do do we need to see this? Why why is this happening? And I think if that's true, this is one of like the earliest instances where it's like, oh, there there is stuff coming out straight to video that might be worth our time. Yeah, and I remember this being. I mean, I in, in my memory, right? And like when we look back on stuff, our our brain is the greatest editor. It condenses and finds patterns that weren't there, and all the good stuff that we already know. But I feel like every fucking movie around this time period had Jeremy Sisto. And that's not enough. Like, I feel like there's an article or a window in in time where Jeremy Sisto was like the king of this tier of horror films from everything with like he was in May. He was in a bunch of other stuff, too. Wasn't he in May? He was in May, right? He was in May. Yeah. Of the right movie. Yeah. Right. So yeah. like all of all of this horror that was coming out that was kind of like bubbling below the surface of theatrical releases whether it was stuff that went direct to video or stuff that like you know played at the ifc center in downtown manhattan and then went to video like whatever that was it all had jeremy sisto and i kind of like to me in a weird kind of way he was like the the look and feel of of he he was the the horror crux of independent and video on demand horror right like he was like he was talented but not super talented but also like he could adjust himself and he could fit in a lot of different modes. And like, he was just sort of the shaggy dog of indie horror. And like, he always worked in stuff. But if you told me ahead of time, if you were like, we're going to go see a Jeremy system movie, I would be like, fuck yeah. I'd be like, okay, okay, sure. Yeah, let's do that. And that was Donato to what you were saying about how it took you a while to warm up to it. That was always kind of my relationship with the direct to video horror market too, is I was always like, okay, yeah, sure. Let's do this. Like, why not? It's Thursday and I'm at Blockbuster. So I, you know, fuck it. Let's rent this instead of, Go out and see a movie because that's like three times more expensive. Yeah, I mean, Sisto at the time, too, when, if we're talking about Sisto himself, that's kind of around wrong turn. Wrong turn is 2003. Uh, I I adore him in Dead and Breakfast, which is 2004. And then like 2006 alone, he's in three independent, you know, indie horror films in Population 436, uh, Unknown, The Thirst. So, yeah, this is what he's always done. Um, and it is it, I do have that same instance whenever he pops up in a horror film because it's like expected and it doesn't throw me in any way because I'm like, oh, he's here. Of mm. course he's here. Like, he's just in indie horror all the time. But serviceable is the word. And I don't mean that negatively in this instance. I think he's in all these direct video horror films because he's kind of good at doing exactly the part that he's asked to do in these movies. I mean, he he goes crazy here in a way that Jeremy Sisto does just fine. I'm not going to say he does it extremely well, but Sisto's playing a part that Sisto does well. He is. He's the kind of actor that would 
star in every during this time period if they were doing Stephen King he would have been in like every Stephen King like miniseries adaptation ever he's that guy that's where he sits and that's 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 a compliment more than it's not a compliment sorry Jeremy if you're listening now he was in a in a King adaptation I believe but he his his performance is exactly right it's measured enough like he it's kind of a cliche to say like he knows what movie he's in but he does like he's not swinging for the fences necessarily but he's also not phoning it in like it's it's a good performance speaking of good performances though how good was fred durst i'm not kidding uh fred durst is the best performance in the film and i'm fine Mm -hmm. saying that he is it's true all right, you guys are going to have to talk a little bit about Fred Durst because my heart beats not for the for the Durst, and I want to know. I, I, I want to know. All right, Christine, you mentioned before that you probably saw this movie because it had Fred Durst. Like, like, do you recall what kind of a turn, left turn, this may or may not have been for him career wise? Now we're sort of used to him fucking around in like the independent genre movie scene because he's done some stuff since, and we're like, okay, I get it, but. Like, was this was this the draw at the time? Were, were people going out and being like, fuck yeah, the lead singer of Limp Bizkit's going to be in this Jeremy Sisto movie? And like, people were buying up the DVD in mass? I, probably not. <laughs> I'm not like a super, I'm not a Durst head, as, as they're called. They're not called that. No one calls them that. But um, I don't love Fred Durst by any means. He used to direct a lot of music videos. Um, and I thought that was interesting. I used to be obsessed obsessed with who directed what music videos i used to have like spreadsheets and lists um but uh, so i thought that was cool and so i kind of always thought he was cool and like low-key handsome so it always stuck out to me that that he was in this strange movie doing like a good performance like he's empathetic he's and like i mean to his credit you didn't know it was him he wasn't like screaming about I don't know, Nookie or whatever. I don't know those songs. But he wasn't like being obnoxious or putting on an... I mean, he was acting. He was being in a movie. And I, I thought that was cool. But um, when I was digging around for a movie to pick, I thought, what about Population 4, 436? And I was like, Fred Durston is in that. Who else is in that movie? I could not pull that it was Jeremy Sisto. So yeah, he's <laughs> he's the shining light in this movie for me. I mean, I will say I, I don't consider myself a Durst head as they're it's not catching called, on. But as We're I will it. now, yeah, it's going to catch on. We're doing it. We're making Durst heads going to be a thing. But I, I mean, I was I picked him out pretty easily. I, I guess I do listen to more Limp Biscuit than I'd like to admit. And I have no problem saying I kind of grew up listening to him in a way. I was an angsty white kid and that's just what I did. And I again, baffled, just like what you're saying, Christine, I'm baffled in the sense that he could give a performance that was legitimately like nuanced and it had depth in the sense that it was the emotional part. Like this wasn't the part that goes crazy. This is, this is the, or Durst is playing the part that is kind of slighted in a scenario and he's hurt and he's damaged and he's trying to figure out as, as the sheriff or, you know, lawman of this town, is he doing the right thing by upholding tradition? And is he doing all these right things? And like, he is the contemplative role. And that sounds insane to say, like, why are we bringing Fred Durst in to do that? But he does that better than I think Sisto actually does losing himself. You know, I, it it becomes this weird thing of seeing them on screen. And Durst is the one that has this like stern face. And he's got this glare down. That's perfect. As he's looking at Sisto with a shotgun and, you know, Sisto's or Sisto's the one panting and trying to like, catch his breath and he's the one going crazy and you're like how how did we get here 
It's it's true. There's there's a moment in the movie where he's where Fred Durst's character is lamenting, like, "Oh, is Jeremy Sisto's character my friend or not?" And I was like, "Oh man, don't be sad." Like I just wanted everything to work out for him. It it he got he has a pivotal role. I mean, if you're gonna use like Twilight Zones as an analog, I mean, he he got you know, the omnipotent turncoat role. And he did really good with it. He's, I mean, uh, I don't know. I like him. Uh, this made, this this changed my mind many moons ago when I watched this the first time. I was like, hmm, that Fred Durst, nuanced guy. So at least we have that. And like, what's funny is his, his career isn't like, it didn't take off, quote unquote. Like he, he's always stayed around music and he's always stayed, like you said, stayed around music videos in that world. But he this role didn't really push him to do any other dramatic roles afterwards. Like he was a bartender on House. He played a guy named Ledge in this movie called Play Dead. But after that, you know, he went to directing, which was funny to me because he removed himself from in front of the camera and then he went behind the camera. You know, he's making these movies like, OK, he's directing The Fanatic, which was his film 100 percent. And that is the crazy batshit movie that he didn't want to be a part of on on camera um and then there's the jesse eisenberg film which why is it escaping me right now um but you know he does this really kind of heady drama with jesse eisenberg and again he doesn't go or uh you know he doesn't do the same thing where he plays this pivotal role on camera and you're kind of like but like you showed you could do it was this just him proving himself i don't know like it's an interesting thing to think like did he just challenge himself to do a part like this and see if he could do it and when he did fred durst is like all right, it's another thing off the checklist. I can just keep keep uh, doing it all for the nook. Done and done. Moving on. I mean, yeah, good for him. Hollywood, Hollywood is basically just Fred Durst's bucket list at this point. All right, so we accept that Fred Durst is really good, and admittingly, yes, like I did not recognize him as Fred Durst until the closing credits, which is probably the best compliment I could give him, honestly. Um, you know, and I, I want to talk a little bit about Michelle McLaurin in this too, because you know she's she's for for people that are interested in film she's brushed up against really big titles before you know she's been rumored to direct or was contracted to direct wonder woman before she parted mm-hmm. ways because of creative differences and of course that went to patty jenkins you know she has directed and i wasn't kidding like she's won emmys for directing uh breaking bad she directed episodes of game of thrones like if it is a big series that has existed if it has captured the cultural zeitgeist at any point as a television show over the last 10 years she has done an episode or two um but she's never done another film after this and like watching this you know there's some there's choices right like there's early 2000 choices there's cgi fire there's the weirdest cgi car like car accident car crash that i've ever seen before in my entire life that, that comes with the, the package a bit but there's also confidence and there's there's sort of clarity of how to move these characters through this central space in a way that that makes sense. Um, I as much as you can ever look at a, you know, a direct to video title and say, oh, I get why this person went on to do great stuff later on. I get why this person went on to do great stuff later on. This movie looks and moves a lot smarter than you expect, mm-hmm. even among kind of like the Jeremy Sisto generation. Oh, for sure, definitely. I mean, it feels like it's it's got a very TV aesthetic, 
to it and and i'm not going to i'm not going to use that as a strike against it at all i mean some of the best stuff i've ever watched have been has been made for television um but there's it feels like a made for tv movie but yeah there's a competence to it and there's a geography to it and there's a sense of urgency to it even though the story you know is is kind of thin there are places where it feels like they're just kind of walking around but she manages to keep it dynamic and interesting and i really i really appreciate that it's it's not it's not a small thing this could have easily fallen into this terrible repetitious loop where you're just going to the same places over and over again there's just some she just managed to make it so fresh every time we went back and did it and yeah i mean the the dream sequences didn't look fantastic and there is some weird stuff Mm. but like i don't know i I, i'll take this a hundred times before some of the other garbage i watch yeah, and we have to assume budget played mm-hmm. a part in some of the things because, you know, if we can't afford real fire, that's that's kind of an issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we're just going to light up a the, like that's that stands out to me, uh, fake fire, animated fire. So it was just one thing that really stood out to be of, oh, right, this is a direct video film. This is the kind of area we're still playing in. But it, other than that, it's pretty sound. It's pretty outside the effects outside of what we might expect from a blockbuster and what, you know, is the larger format television that we now see. And that's, you know, it is crazy to talk about, you know, how much television has evolved and that's where kind of the budgets are in a lot of places now, but this still kind of just chugs right through. And again, I don't mean that as a derogatory thing. Like I I know that could be inferred as, Oh, it's just kind of doing what it has to just going step by step. But for a direct video movie to do that and again to be surprised in that way by a film of that nature yeah, yeah it, it's exactly what we needed to be there and there are three um you know when, when we watch movies like this and i have to tell you that this is this is exactly the caliber of movie that i would have spent my entire high school years looking for uh, by then of course i was near the end of my college degree but like this is this is the sort of stuff that i would have like loved and ingested over and over again and sort of what i find myself how i think of myself evaluating so kind of these like blockbuster finds is is there is there a set piece that is there one set piece in the movie that I was like, ooh, I like that. That sometimes can be the difference between you being going back and remembering something and loving something and something that just sort of falls by the wayside. And I would argue that this movie has three, three unique set pieces, three unique moments that made me think like, oh, I like that. One is the hanging, two mm-hmm. is the 1950s family in the basement. And three is the field of discarded cars, which is by far the most expensive shot in the film from all the people who stopped in this town, each of those ideas, like that's where the budget went. Those are the shots that they fought for. And when you hit those moment, moments in the movie, you're like, I understand completely what you were trying to do here. Like the, this is where you should have saved your bullets. Well fucking done. Oh, totally. That hanging is is 100% what I remembered. 100%. And I was waiting for it the whole time. I, for some reason, thought it was a lot earlier in the movie. But it's still, even knowing it was coming, it was super effective and really well filmed and, and upsetting. But like, but mm-hmm. obviously not explicit, which I appreciate. They set the stage. They said, this is what's going to happen in this idyllic town and it's going to make you feel a way. And then it did. Uh, it's just uh, she she was she's credited as um co-executive producer on 46 episodes of the x-files this feels like a really good episode of the x-files without Mulder and scully in it i don't know i just really like it yet again i was gonna say tying back to uh folkloric i think of midsommar Mm -hmm. I, i think of 
the natural feel that Ari Aster was able to navigate as the grossness and the graphicness of his version of this and, you know, his version of the brutality that happens in the small community that they're so used to. And, you know, the way that they don't flinch and the way that Aster's world is entirely grim and graphic, like I just said, and yet his characters outside the ones that rightfully are terrified are just like, oh, it's another another day in the life. And I felt that very much here during the hanging scene as well. It's done done to a T and it's done exactly how it's been it's been led up to, I guess, is the way I'll say it. And just like you guys were saying before, you know, we know something is coming. We know something's going to shake the system. It can't be just this. Oh, don't worry. Like, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And then the characters start dropping little lines to Jeremy Sisto. The like I said before, the oh, you're never getting out of here. You're like, OK, something's something's weird. So we're being led up to a moment that will grip us and that will rattle us to our core. And yeah, the hanging does that because the, the minute they reveal the sage, it's great. It's behind the curtain. And the mayor's just like smiling, cheering. You know, they all go through the prayer because religion is so important in this film. And all of a sudden they rip that curtain back. And I just see the woman again, the woman who is chosen, the the May Queen, we'll say <laughs> in, in, a, in a certain way. Um, the woman who's chosen is smiling with a noose around her neck and she accepts her fate and she says it's for the greater good. And then she drops. It's so, so good in that. And so fast. Like all of us, it does, there isn't any kind of, the movie doesn't sort of linger a little bit. You can kind of, you're like, what's behind the curtain? But as soon as you figure it out, the movie doesn't stop and like bask in that moment. There's not like a bunch of shot counter shots of Jeremy Sisto being like, no, don't do it. As she like takes two steps closer to the edge. No, don't do it. It's just like, boom, done in the background. And it fucks you up a little bit. Yeah, I think that's, again, one of the movie's strengths is that we get aligned with Sisto's character in a really interesting way. Like, we really don't ever know much more than he does. And I think that's really effective Mm. um, because he doesn't know what's going on. We're not sure what's going on. So neither of us have time to react, which is a really good way to play it. Don't undercut the tension that you've created don't do that and i feel like maybe another filmmaker might have just to wring that emotion out of sisto when the strength really isn't his emotion it's it's that where as clueless as he is so i think it was really smart mm-hmm. yeah i mean the hanging itself is a surprise and again not just the event and not just the the kind of atrocity we'll call it that happens uh but the hanging the way it happens is a total surprise because as you just said, we don't really know what's going on at that point. We know something is amiss. We know that someone has been chosen for a bigger purpose. But, you know, they're kind of just the leader of ceremonies that is the way that it's kind of put out. So we know that's probably not great, but we also don't really know what's going to happen. And again, I mentioned uh, the Wicker Man before because I'm kind of thinking like, all right, are they going to burn this woman at the stake? Like, what, what are they going to do to her? So that reveal of the curtain flying back and it it's basically a gallows is it's something that we're just not expecting at all. And then we see it and it just makes total sense, but it's still a moment of shock and kind of our expectations are paid off at the same time. So you're like, there's the surprise, but also that, yeah, that makes sense. And it, the quickness mm-hmm. is what doesn't let us ever align. Like the quickness is the, the way that the film makes its biggest impact because you don't get to catch your breath. You don't get to catch up. There's no moment of like, oh, okay, so here's what's going to happen. I can now rationalize this. Like, no, it just happens right in front of you, and you're trying to figure it all out as everything washes over like in waves. Almost. Yeah, and there's the, there's you know, for these scenes and a lot of other films, there would be a ton of pageantry around that moment, right? Like the wicker scene death 
or assumed death. I mean, technically, I guess maybe you could live. The wicker scene is it takes forever, right? Because they like they they process to the field and he's yelling the whole time and like they're singing. And it's like this thing that the community is super reverent about. And like there's a lot of pageantry about it. And I kind of, I love, love the simplicity of it. The fact that they're just like, it's time. All right, let's get back to the show, right? Like there isn't, there isn't this pageantry. There isn't this sense of religious rigor um, or, or, you know, ritual around this moment. It's just sort of like she was selected, ka-chunk, and then she's gone. And in a weird kind of way, the fact that that undercuts it so, so much, you know, we're used to horror that like rebels in the gross bits to go all the way back to what Christine was saying with direct to video before we're used to horror movies that are like, somebody's going to die and we're going to, it's going to happen slow. and We're going to let you watch it. You know, we were like, Oh great. This is going to be like the kill. You know, this is going to be the moment that people are going to be like, Oh, you got to fucking see population 436. It's gnarly. And they're just like, she's dead. And then they move right along. And that suddenness of it works in a, it almost in sort of like as the anti, like I like the suddenness of this more than I like the drawn out death in Midsommar because it informs, I feel like I understand the community in mm-hmm. fourth, in population 436 better than I do. Like all of the stuff that's happening in Midsommar is for the benefit of us, the audience, not for the benefit of the community itself. And I feel like I understand the community in population 436 better because of how like, you know, quick and unceremonious it is. It's interesting. It's an interesting, it makes me want to write about those two scenes in comparison to each other because it's such an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. Why would they all make a big deal out of it if this happens all the time and it has to happen all the time for them to keep the population at spoiler alert, 436. They have to constantly. (gasps) Christine, you've ruined the end of the movie. (laughs) Well, it's all right there, everyone. Um, But they have to be constantly doing this. So why would it doesn't make any sense. It's like going to the grocery store. Like, why would they be like, oh, we're doing this bit? No. And they show her going around and like shaking hands and being happy and excited in the background. Like we see them pick her name. Mm-hmm. We we get all of it. I mean, it's not like it springs forth from nowhere. But of course, I mean, no, why would they care? This is their life. This is how they live. Why would they wouldn't? make a big deal out of it so the movie shouldn't it's really you know what i give this i like this movie more the more we're talking about it i've given it credit i'm giving it more now agreed yeah me too and also the little surprise that they leave still is the fact that the hanging comes first and then we get the the i I was gonna say crazy but you know the the lobotomized in a way family in the prison after that and i think that's a really good way of kind of setting it up uh, chronologically because if we did get the family in the prison who is mentioned during the film, there's a family in the prison. They have basically had their minds poisoned, I guess we'll say in a way. I know it's like lobotomy science, but their minds have basically been turned to the sense that the community is where they need to be. They will no longer leave it. And well, the community themselves will do anything to keep you there. So seeing that family in the prison and seeing them so happy and seeing that moment of being ripped out of reality because it does not feel realistic because Jeremy Sisto at this point has seen the hanging. He is frantic. He is running around like crazy. And then he finds this family in the prison, like basically in the basement and they feel very not realistic, but that's also normal. I don't know. It was just, I just think it's really smart to do that second because if you did that scene first where Sisto finds the family in the prison, I don't think the hanging has as much impact. I think that would have undercut the sense of us waiting for the big reveal of grimness. And 
seeing that family first would have it would have just been a little bit like oh so this is gonna get real weird after this like the hanging being the first real weird quote-unquote part is what gives it a lot of its punch at the end yeah and i you, think this, you brought up the this end, might have been so... a really good script sorry i think this script was good i don't know the more i think about it the writing was really intentional so yeah yeah well I, i'm gonna i'm gonna springboard off of what donato was saying christine and, and ask you kind of as our last conversation about the film too that ending um how do you like again we all know that you know m night Shyamalan fever you know, rushed across the nation we all liked we were all looking for endings that kind of left us thinking oh i didn't see that coming um but I am I am particularly enamored with how this film sets up its ending. So I want to know what, what you thought revisiting this for the first time in a minute, Christine. How'd you feel about the ending? Um, I had forgotten how it ends. I thought it was a lot uh, more open and unclear, but I feel like it ties up really nicely uh, while also kind of leaving it ominously open, if that makes any sense. Um, like this town is going to keep doing what they're doing, but our story you know, with Jeremy Sisto is done. I think that's great. And for me, that's the most folk horror thing about it is the town remains undisturbed to a certain degree. Uh, They are going to continue Mm -hmm. to exist the way they always had and outside forces aren't going to stop that. I, so I, I do, I think it worked really, really well as opposed to like, you know, the million other ways it could have ended. Jeremy Sisto could have burned the whole town down and everybody, blah, 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 or none of it was real. I just, I thought it was uh, probably best case scenario for what they had set up. And I think this drives home the fact that it is direct to video. And this is an ending that we really would only get in something that isn't as widely regarded, I would say, uh, or is the way I would say it in that sense, because... It, it's a swing. It's a huge swing. And it's not the perfect little tie up that we get. It's or that we'd usually get in a mainstream horror film. It's not the quote unquote happy ending. It's it's in line with the film that we're given the whole time. And I mean, I think we've said this a few times going forward. Everything. The facts are right in front of us. It gives us everything we need to know to make its impact. And of course, I'm talking about the film and the script and everything about it. But seeing the ending and seeing the way that this movie really doesn't give a fuck it's refreshing in a way it's refreshing in a way um it's not perfect to that point let me again just state that there is definitely some flourishes of dtv quality throughout the film and you know whatever it is what it is but seeing the I, i see like seeing an ending that doesn't spoon feed i like seeing an ending that doesn't just say all right we told the story we need to tell sisto and a little child escape because they've beat the town or, you know, we just don't need to know about this anymore. Nope. We're going to show you that uh, no matter how much you fight against the system, it's still going to win. And sorry, more people are going to get hung and it's just going to be a cycle of repetition, no matter how hard you try. And it's like, okay, thanks. Thanks movie. (laughs) Yeah. I made a, a slew of notes on my sheet of paper about why this, this film might be a little sadly relevant today in terms of social media and cults and indoctrinating early and how if they get you early enough, you'll grow up believing and doing pretty much whatever you say. I don't think we need to have that conversation. Frankly, we've been having that conversation for like eight years now. Um, but I will, I will say that I, I will never, 
the the thing that you can do as a horror movie that will make me love you more than anything else in the world is introduce the idea of a religion and then pay it off so that you're you think the religion the deity that the people are praying to or worshiping might actually have interceded in the way that they believed i love nothing more um again weird for an ex-catholic but i love nothing more than the idea that like they were right all along their god is the right god and he or she or it is looking out for them that's fun that's so much fun and the fact that they went there at the end um it was just an absolute delight for me i agree (sighs) well last question then um about this film before we say our our fair our, our fond goodbyes we cannot be members 437 438 and 439 of population 436 you know we always talk about on this show the fact that these films are forgotten for a reason right they have five or fewer reviews and rotten tomatoes and while that's not always a clear indication of how many people reviewed it or who's talking about it it usually serves as a good shorthand for the fact that these films are are a little a little bit on the lost side um Thankfully, this film is more accessible than most because it's available on Tubi TV, which is by far the best and most fun of all the streaming platforms. Uh, But Christine, I want to ask you our standard question. How does this movie get reclaimed? Like, how does this movie become part of the conversation? You know, is this is this a scenario where in 20 years this will be considered a classic of the early 2000s horror? And if so, how does it get there? I wish. Um, I just think people need to start talking about it but they need to know it exists first so it's good that it's available on something like Tubi because that gives people an opportunity to actually look at it and I think there's a chance with this movie because of its accessibility and also because it's got a weird hook like Fred Durst that's a weird thing to tell somebody to get them to watch a movie even though he's not doing Fred Durst like shit in it it's a lot quieter than, than maybe you know his music career but it, I think there's a lot there for people to latch on to and I think it's I think Donato said it maybe it was you Matthew I'm not sure somebody said talk about this in relation to Midsummer or the the death scene in that like I think there's a lot of parallels to be drawn about how this successfully handled things that other more popular films might have handled just as well or maybe not as well uh, and I, 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 I recently watched every single episode of uh, Fear Itself and Masters of Horror, and this is this is so much better than all of those. And and yet people don't know what this is. I would like people to know what this is. So I mean, if you guys have any uh, advice other than this podcast and screaming about it from Twitter, uh, let me know. <laughs> Well, it was actually a very funny thing because I I tweet out when I watch a film, I just do a dumb little tweet that says, like, I'm watching this because I don't know if it's a new movie, it puts it on people's radar. If it's an old movie, I get to hear what other people think about it. And this is another one of those times where I tweeted today that I'm watching Population 436 and I'm expecting zero engagement and I expect no one to even know what this movie is. And all of a sudden, like a few people are responding going, oh, my God, like, is this streaming somewhere again? Like, can I watch it again? And other people saying like, oh, I love this movie when I saw it back then. Like, that's so cool. And it's something that I'll bring up again, going back to my previous conversation. I never would have found at the time because at the time I was using things like Rotten Tomatoes at the time I was entrenched in my film upbringing in the way that I had not yet, I hadn't gotten to the point that I'm at yet. And I've said that already. So like my viewing habits were very different then. So it fell to the wayside. And that's why I think a lot of films like population four, three, six, the straight to video, the ones that were a little weirder and the ones that, you know, 
critics at the time didn't like horror or sorry the critics on rotten tomatoes at the time didn't really love horror so to make them watch a directed video one is like they, they were barely even like wanting to watch the mainstream ones and when they were they were tearing them apart so it just gets lost because no one's talking about it critically no one's championing it this way and all of a sudden it just gets brushed under the rug because well it's a it's directed video in the time that directed video was a more than a stigma it was just something no one wanted it was the walmart dollar bin and as much as i learned to love that bin and as much as i've learned to find a lot of weird curio uh, titles through there and really come to champion them you know that kind of appreciation of film i don't even think was around at that point so the internet has found a way to make things relevant again the internet has found a way to dig up films from the past and do it through streaming so the fact that this is on Tubi, I, I think that's the best shot it has. And once again, I found it because of this podcast and just talking to you guys, because number one, Christine, you <laughs> made me watch it. But number two, when you brought it up, I was looking through Tubi for an article and I was literally like scrolling through it to try to find streaming wrecks just because it's one of my uh, columns. And all of a sudden I'm like, holy shit, there's population 436. If I hadn't known you were bringing it to the podcast, I would have scrolled right on by. And that's just how it would have happened. But just from you saying it, all of a sudden, like, I was like, oh, my God, it's on Tubi. It's available to everyone. So then I finally watched it. I don't know. I think word of mouth is the only way this one goes. But luckily, the word of mouth can work because the tools are there. It's right there for everyone. So I'm hoping that we are as influential as we think we are. Yeah. And I'll, I'll end that by saying that, you know, I'm I like Midsommar a lot. Um, I and I don't like Hereditary. So I'm confused by why I like Midsommar so much. I'm the exact but- opposite. Uh, we boo, need to, we need to talk about that someday. We're gonna take that to DMs. <laughs> uh, but the thing is that, like, I, I if you ask me to summarize how I feel about Population Thirty Six, I would say um, I'm a producer. I have ten million dollars. I can fund one Midsummer or ten Population Four Thirty Six. I'm fucking doing ten of these movies. Like I am. Like it is. It, it, it. There's just there's so much there. Like give people a million dollars and be like get the best actor you can get and go do something that, you know, feels fun and is, is indicative of the kind of film that you want to make. I mean, I am like in the middle of empty man Renaissance over here. I love, I love the movies that are earnest and just doing the most they can with what they have. And there is always going to be a place for the director driven, the auteur driven stuff like Midsommar, but I will always love movies like population Four Thirty Six more. And maybe that means I'm just, you know, the trash man, but I, it's, it's just, it's what I love. It's what I love. I love it when a good movie that has no reason to be as good as it is, is that good. And you just want to tell people about it. So that's where I stand. Sorry, Ari Aster. I want to put population 436 in the Criterion Collection. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think Donato and I have that kind of I'm gonna, I'll write a letter. You guys sign it. We'll send it off. <laughs> that's great. There you go. Three signatures. Done that's, and done. They brought back Arrested Development twice. That should be, we can do a letter writing campaign too. All right. Well, that is our Population 436 conversation. Um, Christine, I want to say thank you for everything, but today I want to say thank you for participating in this podcast. Um, and I want to give you a chance to, to shout out some of the stuff that you're working on too. I know we we blurbed you at the beginning, but uh, what, are some, what are some projects you have going on? What are some upcoming places that people can see you if they want to see your writing, your conversations, your voice, et cetera? Well, thank you for having me. Um, but also, I am primarily on Twitter. It's uh, xteen underscore makepeace. 
I also have a podcast that I do with one of my best friends, Emily, called The Feminine Critique. Um, and I write lots of fiction. Uh, a great place to keep up with that is on Twitter, but uh, you can find me at christinemakepeace.com. I have a very uncommon name, so I am easy to find. Good SEO. <laughs> yes, that's what my mom was thinking of <laughs> when she mm -hmm. had me. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure that was. Donato, my man, uh, promote thyself. You can find me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. And I will be posting all of my stuff there. I think just do that. Let's just make it easy this time. And, uh, you know, Monagle, I'll let you uh, do all the site stuff because you're so much better at that. Uh, you go to our website, read the words that we give people money to put on there. Is that, is, I could do better. I'll do, I can do better. Um, you can find my writing on lots of different places, but let's say you follow me on Twitter as well. Lab Splice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. Please do check out certifiedforgotten.com. Uh, we're super proud of a lot of the content that we have up there. We're going to have more con good content in the future. I know I say content. I'm sorry I'm a marketer by day. That's not a knock. Like the word content to me is a good word. So we have a lot of really good film criticism. We have a lot of really good journalism and writing on there um, that I would encourage you to check out. Uh, Christine worked on a piece not that long ago about um, what was the autopsy of Jane Doe, which is one of her favorite pieces that she's ever read. No. What? Nope. What? No, I said she worked on it. I didn't the, write read. it. Yeah, oh, she didn't write it. I thought you meant I, sorry, I, I wish. I was building to that. I was building to that. Christine worked on a piece. She she helped edit and helped us publish a piece on the autopsy of Jane Doe, which is really awesome. And I'm giving it a shout out because it's one of her favorite pieces that she's helped edit that's been on the site. So if you want to start somewhere good, start there because it's her favorite piece. It's one of the best pieces we published, et cetera. Is that okay, Donato? Did I do that well? <laughs> I just want to make sure that you knew she wrote about the final girls, which is why I was like, wait, I want to make oh, sure you yes. weren't attributing the yeah, wrong you one. Do. I'm sorry. I, that, that is a better place. We should actually have people read the thing that you read, that you actually wrote and not just the thing that you edited. Yes, Christina has a piece on Certified <laughs> Forgotten about the final girls. You should do that too. My God. This it's, was a roller it's coaster. Been a long, it's been a long fucking year, man. I can't. Can you tell how much we prepared for this <laughs> yeah, one? No one listens to my it. podcast. It's a fucking mess. I don't know who listens to it. I don't know where you can get it. I have no idea. That's so. That's my plug for myself. <laughs> what you re you record it and you don't even no, know where you can get it. I have no it. idea. I just show up. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay, so we ended great on this one. Um, my apologies to Christine. Uh, we probably will have to bring you back on the show and do a better job with your intros and extras. You know next time but yes please visit the site she has a hand in so many things but she actually actually wrote the piece on the final girls you should read that um and also wait if you want to give christine even more work on our website why don't you check out our patreon where you can help support certified forgotten and the work that we do because we cannot do it without the help of you all as much as me and monogle put our money into it the more you guys give us the more we're going to put into the site and into the into the content itself so the more money you give us the more we can give it to christine oh, to yeah. ask things. just think of it that way yeah. Uh, sorry guys usually I'm more on point at the end of these episodes and today I am just all over the place so give us your money so we can turn around and give it to Christine this is a winning proposition for all three of us look I can always support that alright well um, shit so we're done <laughs> Christine I want to say thank you again for joining us on the episode uh, we'll definitely we'll definitely have you back you had another film you were thinking about too so we won't mention that this time but next time we'll see you again uh, Donato Please like give us some give us a sense of closure here, man. Give us something good to go out on. I did it all for the nookie. Perfect. Perfect.